0: Coming up this hour, we're going to hit some headlines. Also, we're going to talk about anxiety in a pandemic, and was Jesus actually born in a stable? That and more coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm and uh, Brian Peruge. I got a bunch of headlines here. I'm going to let you choose in a second which ones to go first with, but... I mean, we're also friends in real life, so let's not get right down to business. How are you, Brian, from the person doing
1: <laughs> the person? Let's just dig in. Uh, I'm doing well. Yeah, I am doing OK. It was a good weekend. Um yeah, now I'm trying to think back. Yeah, good family weekend. We, you know what we did on Friday night? It was really fun because our family, you know, my kids are older, so we run all over the place. Even in the midst of a pandemic, it feels like we're busy. So we told all the kids, you know, clear your schedule. We went and we picked up, we let them choose whichever like fast food restaurant they wanted. So we went to like three different ones and then drove around all over town looking at beautiful Christmas lights for like two hours. And while listening to Christmas music, it was really nice. fun. <laughs> oh, so that was well Friday. Done. Yeah, but otherwise it was a great weekend. How about yours? How are you doing today? Oh,
0: we're not that close. Let's get right down to business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was, it was fine. I don't even. It's all, a, it's all a wash now at this point. Who knows? So we are doing. I'm pretty excited. You know, in lieu of uh, like traditional Christmas Eve services, we're gearing up a community for next week. We're doing these Christmas journeys where we we uh, like put together this like seven-stop Christmas experience throughout town. So you show up at the Yellow Box or whatever location you attend, and then you get like a kit. And it's like a guided Christmas journey experience. So we we're, we've been working on that a little bit, and that's really, been, yeah, yeah. That's I'm really excited about that. That's been that's been a lot of fun. We also had our gift mart on Saturday, which normally is like this big, massive, multi-school location where we we set up like an actual toy store in each of these schools from all these donated toys, and then people can buy back these toys for like a dollar or two dollars, and a lot of money goes to the school and. It obviously looked much different this year, but uh, we still right. were able to do something with gift cards and whatnot. So that I was really, really proud of our team. They did, I think, just a remarkable job pivoting in a pretty unpivotable situation. Unpivotable. So, yes, mm-hmm. yes, that's yes. right. All right. So now, we do need to get down to brass tacks at some point here. So I'm going to let you, per use, choose uh, one of the headlines you'd like to go with.
1: That's your second use of per use. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's where we're going Mm -hmm. today. Uh, You know, I think the biggest headline, and that's where we're going to start, is the COVID-19 vaccine, which uh, it's kind of unbelievable to see it rolling out. Now, you know, yourself or me, where we are in our ages, it's still going to be a couple months probably before we get this. Although on the Today Show today, uh, one of the head guys said that he thought by end of February, early March, you'll be able to walk into a CVS or something. So that's sooner than I had heard. Yeah. Uh, but just to see people getting the vaccine, to see it rolling out feels like a light at the end of the tunnel, even amidst all the struggles still going on, uh, feels like a really big deal. And, you know, I, I would also say that, you know, we've given uh, our fair share of, of grief to President Trump. But earlier this year, he said, I think it'll be here before the end of the year. And, P- and, and people were saying yeah. there's no chance it's, it's going to require a miracle. Yeah, and that miracle, if you will, has happened. And so I think it's a it's a huge day in this just kind of nine month slog so far of the pandemic. Uh, lots of other things going on today, but I certainly think the major headline today is that their vaccine is is approved and it is it is on the road, it's moving out, and and uh pretty soon uh people will have the opportunity to be uh getting the vaccine.
0: What what other things are going on that you think we should be talking about?
1: Besides the vaccine? Yeah. You said uh, there are lots of other things. You know, I think a big deal today is that uh, uh, the Electoral College is officially voting today. So, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're into this kind of stuff to like you turn on CNN and they're basically showing it state by state and seeing you're reminded that all politics are local and state. Right. And so it doesn't mean that President Trump is going to concede today or this, but it's kind of another step to uh, certifying and solidifying the election that happened over a month ago. Uh, And so it is kind of cool to see. Uh, You know, these kind of local people and state secretaries of state going, okay. this now we're certifying what the people did and and to be reminded of the process, I think is just really interesting. So I would say that's the other big story of of the day is that uh, the electoral colleges, uh, each state is voting today and kind of making it official. And then in the first week in January, Congress will ratify this. Uh, and things will continue to move until Inauguration Day on January, I believe, 21st. It's either the 20th or the 21st. And so I think that's the other big story to see kind of the wheels of democracy continue to uh, continue to spin.
0: Well, now, I'm, now I'm concerned about your salvation, Brian, because you didn't even mention the Christmas star appearing on the darkest day this year. And as a pastor, I would assume that would be at least in your top two. But but here I am um, shocked and dismayed.
1: The Christmas star on the dark. You're going to need to speak more about that. Tell us more.
0: I mean, it's in, it's in the rundown. Did you did you click the links? Did you?
1: <laughs> I didn't know we'd gotten to that one yet.
0: Yes. <laughs> you hadn't you haven't heard anyone talking about this. An astronomical phenomenon that has not occurred for the past 800 years on December 21st. Jupiter and Saturn will come into such close alignment that they will appear to be a unit calling to mind the Christmas star. The Magi followed to find the newborn Messiah. I feel like everyone and I That's know wild. Is talking about this. You haven't heard about Foster. this at all
1: honestly the first i've heard of it but when you read it it's pretty crazy alignments between these two planets are rather r- rare occurring once every 20 years or so uh, and you have to go all the way back to just before dawn of march the 4th uh 12 to see a closer alignment between these two objects visible in the night sky that's ra- that, that's pretty cool uh so what is that what is the thought are people trying to say this is uh what happened at the first christmas or they're just calling it the christmas star
0: oh i haven't delved that deep i don't i don't actually know that i care that much um <laughs> <laughs> it i just think it is it's interesting and it's especially like the kind of year where you're like okay we just need some fun enjoyable awe-inspiring kind of news and i i'm not i'm about as much a space guy as i'm a brain science guy i'm like really really interested in it but know very very little about it so it's like that's super interesting but if you ask any follow-up questions, I won't have any answers for you. So.
1: <laughs> okay. That, that's Which, sort of that's the space I live in.
0: All right, so you're the you're the sports guy as y- you often say. We just uh, heard some news out of Cleveland that is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, the Cleveland Indians, uh long name that's for for decades. Uh they came out with an announcement last night saying that the Cleveland Major League Baseball team is going to drop the name Indians from its name. So it'll still play as the Indians this year. Uh, And but they are going to now be changing uh, not just the mascot, but the name altogether. Uh, This has been kind of the movement. You see a lot of teams that that have Native American names or images kind of making these changes. Uh, The Washington football team. Think about that. Uh, And so the Cleveland Indians, like I said, they are going to play another year as the Indians. But now they are making this change. And uh, and also they had uh, their mascot, who has always been known as Chief Wahoo. They're getting rid of that and uh, kind of making a new change. And so I always get surprised when people get all uh, all upset about things like that. I've seen some people trying to take that angle. Of, I'm thinking like, OK, if you if you've heard that this is offensive to some people and as a team, you're that's enough for you to make a change. So be it. Go make the change. So I think it's a good move by them. And it'll be really interesting like, to see how they go about naming themselves now. Will it be what will will they will they will they turn it into a contest how does a team even go about making a change like that I think that's going to be fascinating to watch over the next year as they decide their new name
0: well I did see Donald Trump tweeted about it yesterday he's he's in the category of unhappy so I imagine there's probably a lot of people that are unhappy this isn't the typically the kind of story that we would do during advent or the beginning of a show but uh, did you see that one of the Zodiac killers ciphers was uh, decoded by some amateur (laughs) decoder
1: Which is it's it's another story of how smart are there people? There's just so many smart people out there. Right. This has that this has uh, dumbfounded uh, investigators and everybody for so long. And and somebody was able to crack the code, if you will. It's just fascinating. It reminds you that things change like, you know, good police work. Right. They just keep Uh going at it and going at it and eventually being able to figure things out. So, yeah, I did see that. It's a pretty crazy story.
0: Yeah, lastly, and I'll just get 10 seconds of your thoughts on this one. We won't actually read the article, but uh, I just like the headline and I wanted to start off getting a little salty here on the common good. A reminder, <laughs> Oh, Holy Night started out as an abolitionist anthem. Any thoughts?
1: I just never knew that I love the song, oh holy night uh and and that 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 that's the history behind it, like you said, in brief ten seconds, I think is fascinating and uh is good for people to know. I think it's good to know what are the origins of the songs in general that we sing, so I think this is uh this is pretty pretty interesting.
0: well, and that in the biz, Brian is what we call a segue because coming up next, nine common myths that Christians believe at Christmas. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins. I don't know why I said that like a carnival barker, but it's going to be that kind of day. I have I have just a feeling about it. Uh, I, I thought this was interesting. I'd heard some of these and others I'd, I'd never heard put quite so articulately. So I think this is interesting over at Relevant. Nine common myths that Christians believe at Christmas. My guess is that one of these will be one that you, our listener, has believed up until this moment. So brace yourself. We might be uh, poking the bear, as it were, <laughs> at some <laughs> myths that we like to
1: hold on to, but I thought I thought this was interesting. So why don't, why don't you get us into it? Yep, good old relevance, stirring the pot at Christmas time. So here we go. Number <laughs> one, the Bible says that Jesus was born on December 25th. It's the age-old question, is December 25th Jesus' birthday? The answer is that we really don't know when his actual birthday was. The Bible doesn't tell us an exact date. So it begs the question, how did Christmas land on December 25th? Some historians believe that it was a Christian reaction to a Roman pagan holiday, while others believe the date is a response to the traditional date of Jesus' crucifixion in March. Honestly, we don't really know when Jesus was born. However, two things are certain. Jesus was born of a virgin, and the Bible doesn't give us an exact date.
0: Okay, number two, are you ready? The Bible mm-hmm. says Mary rode into Bethlehem on a donkey. An extremely pregnant Mary riding into town on a donkey is definitely a common myth. Most Christians believe is in the Bible. Now, she very well could have made the sixty-five mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey. Nevertheless, the account of the story in Luke two one through six does not specifically teach this. Nevertheless we all should consider how tough Mary was to make this trip while being pregnant because most of us men can't get out of bed if we have the common cold. <laughs> that's true. I also have heard people say to have access to something like a donkey to travel would have been reserved for people of a much higher socioeconomic class than Mary and Joseph. Right. So further perhaps pointing to the possibility that they didn't actually have a donkey to use. So I think that's interesting.
1: Why the shot at men there at the end, though? Because most men can't get out of the bed if we have the common cold. I felt like a shot.
0: Yeah, it's not Uh, an incorrect one though.
1: It's (laughs) number three. The Bible says that there were three wise men. One of the most popular Christmas carols, We Three Kings, shows the commonality of this particular myth. The Gospel of Matthew describes these men as magi or wise men. People commonly think that there were three in number because the Bible details the fact that they brought three gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But this doesn't mean that there were three magi. There could just as easily have been four, eight, or ten. Also, one could ascertain that these guys were the very first essential oil dealers. <laughs> okay.
0: That's I'm funny. sensing a rhythm here. Each little myth is going to end with a, uh, a little joke at the end. That's the, I, that's the vibe uh, I think yeah. we're going for here. Uh, okay, so we were just talking about this in the first segment, the star, right? The Bible says a star hovered over the manger. You'd be hard-pressed to find an activity scene that doesn't include a bright, shining star hovering above it. It's definitely a nice sentiment and symbol. The problem is there's no reference to this in the Gospels. The Magi were given a star that first led them to Jerusalem, Matthew 2, 1 through 2, and then to Bethlehem, verse 9 and 10, where they found the child. In jealousy, King Herod gave a command that all babies in the region younger than two years old be killed, verse 16. This suggests that Jesus had been in Bethlehem for some time at this point, so neither the wise men nor the star were hovering over the manger the night Jesus was born.
1: And Where's our joke? (laughs)
0: oh yeah good point i just added it with my mind exploding
1: (laughs) next one says this the bible says jesus was born in a barn or stable oh boy just about every nativity set places the baby jesus in a barn surrounded by animals once again this is an assumption because the bible does not specify this the scriptures actually say and she gave birth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end luke chapter 2 verse 7 it's easy to assume that Jesus was born in a barn or stable because of the manger mentioned. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. However, these feeding troughs were also commonly used inside homes because families would sleep upstairs while small animals were kept downstairs on cold nights. They're just—they are just blowing up the uh, the nativity scenes here for sure.
0: Well, and there's a whole other article about that one specifically that we have up at the Facebook page. We won't have time to get into it, most likely, but it unpacks why that's significant. And I think it's it's a really worthy read because that is an easy It's – we've all heard Christmas sermons about, like, oh, no, no space was found, so they had to sleep in someone's barn. And the fact that that's probably not the case I think is significant. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime before Christmas. Uh, the Bible says there was a little drummer boy, which, by the way, would be the most – annoying thing to have if you just gave birth (laughs) to a baby mind if i bring my drum you're like yes carl we do mind, little boy
1: oh you're trying to get some sleep let me go to sleep (laughs) right
0: a little drummer boy playing his drum pum 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 that's what all the first time parents want right mary and joseph hadn't had any sleep oh i didn't realize this was gonna make fun of it the birthing arrangements and location haven't been ideal but yes please come and play your drum for my newborn baby boy just make sure you play it as loud as humanly possible.
1: It doesn't make much sense. And there is no account of this ever happening. <laughs> but but there is a wonderful song memorializing it for sure.
0: Wonderful, really?
1: Oh, love it. Love it. You do <sighs> not love Little Drummer Boy. I do. I, uh, maybe I don't love it, but it's good. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> All right. The Bible says Jesus was born in 0 AD. BC stands for before Christ and AD stands for a Latin phrase, Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord. However. According to Matthew 2, verse 1, Jesus was born during the days of Herod the king. Most historians place Herod's death at 4 B.C., with Herod ordering all two-year-olds and younger in the area to be killed before his own death. It seems as though a more proper estimate of Jesus' birth would have been sometime between 4 B.C. and 6 B.C.
0: Okay, here's another one that I actually wrote about and caught some heat for, saying Mary Xmas is, quote, taking Christ out of Christmas. I'm sure that you've seen this one before. Over the last decade or so, many Christians have felt like there is a war on Christmas. Some believers see the phrase Mary Xmas as an attempt to remove Christ from Christmas. Although some people may be deliberate in their attempts, the statement itself is not offensive. The first letter in the Greek word for Christ is chi. In the Roman alphabet, chi is represented by the symbol X. Therefore, Exians Christians, don't have to be flustered by hearing or seeing Mary Eximus. There's other reasons as to why that's important with uh, the introduction of the printing press and all of that, but uh, I'm glad they included this one because that's a big one.
1: That's interesting. Last one. Uh, Saying happy holidays is taking Christ out of Christmas. This statement may be an attempt at being, quote, politically correct. However, holiday literally means holy day. Celebrating the birth of Jesus definitely makes it a holy day. Thankfully, because of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, every day can be a happy, holy day. To the believer, Christmas shouldn't be a one-day celebration, but rather a lifestyle of celebrating the truth that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is by Shane Pruitt, who has a a new book entitled Nine Common Lies Christians Believe and Why God's Truth is Infinitely Better.
0: Oh, there you have it. Any of those uh, got you particularly rattled right now, Brian Fromm?
1: No, I remember the first time that I heard that uh, I knew most of these now, but I remember being younger the first time hearing uh, that Jesus may not have been born in a barn or stable. Like that's the one. Hmm. But you're like, he was laid in a manger. But then someone, you know, they answer that he gives here about, well, they actually in the houses back then, that was the one that shook me, not shook me, Like, but like was more like, really? Like some of the other, I knew there wasn't a little drummer boy, and I'd heard about, was it necessarily three wise men, or Jesus was probably born in the spring, uh, these types of things. But the, the fact of the Barner Stable one, I remember that one being like, no, I, I really think the Bible says that, and then being shown that that doesn't necessarily be the case.
0: Well, and I like, I'll like i just read this final paragraph here in the other article that I mentioned about, and it's a great read. If you want if you want to know more about the one that Brian just referenced, Uh says, quote, the problem with the stable is that it distances Jesus from the rest of us. It puts even his birth in a unique setting in some ways as remote from life as if he had born in Caesar's palace. But the message of the incarnation is that Jesus is one of us and he came to be what we are. And it fits well with that theology that his birth, in fact, took place in a normal, crowded, warm, welcoming Palestinian home, just like Many another Jewish boy of his time. Either way, it's a it's a great read if you want to know more about that particular myth, because that's one that I know plenty of us have held for a long time. But my guess is that list maybe produced some anxiety for some of you. So coming up next, seven totally practical ways to fight anxiety. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on Aim Eleven Sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I'm going to save the holidays. I'll. Well, wow, that sounds weird out of context. I'm not going to save the holidays. I'm <laughs> n- I'm well, n- thank you, Ian. <laughs> 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 I just heard it. I'm going to save what has become a normal part of the show where I read what the holidays are for today. See, that just took too much time. Anyway, you can find save it all over the place. Yeah, save the holidays. And uh, here's something. That I have found more people this year, but in particular during the holiday season. I feel like the holiday season is anxious for a lot of people anyway. But after the year that we just had, I feel like it's at an all-time high. So I thought this was a pretty interesting read over at faithit.com. Seven totally practical ways to fight anxiety. And I appreciate the practical part of that because sometimes don't you feel like these articles feel... Uh, just way too ethereal or yes you're like for just a thousand dollars download this thing you know like oh, i'm not gonna <laughs> yes. that makes me anxious just thinking about it like they're actually practical and doable and uh so i'll let you i'll let you kick us off
1: Yeah. And like you said, this time of year is anxiety inducing for a lot of people. But man, what we've been going through and continue to go through uh, with the pandemic, with the election and everything, it just you do. You talk to a lot of people who just have at least a low lying anxiety, if not just full blown anxiousness right now. And so these are helpful. Uh, Anxiety, it says, can be such a beast. It ruins good days and makes bad days feel impossible. The hardest part about it is how little others understand unless they have experienced it. Here are some things people without anxiety like to tell people with anxiety. Just tell yourself things are fine. Count your blessings. Things could be worse. Let go of control. You should go see a counselor. Have you tried vitamin D lights? You need medicine. These aren't always wrong things to say, but they don't help much when you feel like you're crawling out of your skin or right at that moment. Many people mm. confuse depression with anxiety and that one really gets me. I'll even get asked, do you want to hurt yourself? Uh, no, I want the exact opposite. I want to be as far <laughs> from dead or hurt as possible. That's why I'm anxious. Mm. And so the author here is saying, uh, there might be a lot of little things you can do that will add up enough to help you be okay. So again, uh, appreciate a the practicality of it and b that this author is going, I've been dealing with anxiety. Uh, the author says I've dealt with anxiety since December 31st, 2004 mm-hmm. before that I didn't know exist. It existed yet. Yes. I've had fearful moments, but now I've got this anxiety. And so uh, this list of seven things, very practical that you could try. And he's uh, the author is saying that, that maybe a collection of these will start to make a difference. So number one, uh, hot showers. For some reason, this helps me sometimes. I have been known to take three showers in a day. Wow. Uh, I don't look at it as a cleaning session. I look at it as therapy. Hot water is soothing. And for those few moments, I don't let myself worry. I just stand there and let the water pelt me while I think of nothing. I may or may not shave my legs just so I feel a tad bit productive. Number one, hot showers.
0: And that's probably a good point to mention that this is a female author, Michelle Lindsay.
1: Yes, I, I think that one. gave it to us right there. <laughs>
0: do you have any idea what this
1: number two is at all? I do not. That's why I did number one.
0: <laughs> I I could tell you're about to pass it off to me, and you're like, nope, I don't want to do number two. So, Lavala, Lavella, WS, Lavella. Lavella, that makes more sense. Yeah. Lavella, WS, 1265. Any guesses? Okay. Since I recently saw a new naturopath, I told him I needed serious and for real help with anxiety. I explained I suffer from fear regarding my health. I told him I wasn't kidding and that if he ever told me I had to have surgery, the doctors would have to use a scope scope and tranquilizer gun and hunt me down and drag me on like a wild <laughs> animal. Woo! I think that painted a true picture of how I felt and he looked convinced. He told me about lavender pills that have been clinically tested against antidepressants and anti anxiety pharmaceutical drugs including placebo and came out ahead wow he said that he is very encouraged by these pills and they are all natural and inexpensive i'm not a doctor and can't promise they'll take away your anxiety but i would say they diminished my own anxiety by about 40% okay we're not that's a wild we're one. not officially uh, condoning or sanctioning or yes. referring any of this but that that at least has one person's account that's
1: that's pretty surprising That is this article brought to you by Lavella WS 1265. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Number three, biofeedback and neurophysiological treatment. Okay. Okay. This isn't a little suggestion. This is more of a big one, but I saw a lot of progress. I used to have terrible fear of flying. It was so bad that I would vomit and have to run to the bathroom nonstop for two days before a flight. I was a mess the whole time in the air. And by the time I landed, I was covered in sweat. I finally found the experience so terrible. I just stopped flying. I missed so many amazing things because of this. I started going to biofeedback and clearly had amazing results. I now walk onto airplanes like a boss and fly to places like England and Hawaii. (laughs) Turbulence, I couldn't care less. If you knew me, you would know how shocking that is. And then there's a link. Here is where I go for treatment. Maybe you could call their office and get a referral for a provider Mm -hmm. near you. It's pretty complex, but takes little effort on your part. You just sit there. And they fix you. <laughs> this is crazy.
0: Oh, boy. All right. I'm going to read two and then let you read two. Number four, walk. Walking sounds so cliche, but it helps. The fresh air, the sound of crunching gravel, the feeling of leaving your problems behind you. Moving forward feels good. Walk with your kids or alone or with friends. Listen to an audiobook, podcast, or music. Even 20 minutes will help. I totally agree. And I'm often yes. very bad at this. I'll just keep kind of staring at the screen trying to figure out a problem. What I really need to do is walk. Number five, rest. Rest is crucial. Here's another one I'm terrible at. Get yourself cozy sometimes and read, drink tea, and exhale. Do things that calm you. Make yourself relax. Cut out on anything you don't need to be doing. I know this is much harder when you have older kids, but try to find times to unwind. I like to sit on my swing in the yard and read.
1: Even 20 (laughs) minutes can do the trick. Well, that sounds lovely. Yeah. So you two has chose two that you said you do poorly. Now let me do one Mm -hmm. that I do poorly. Stop eating sugar. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is important. Refined sugars make us feel a billion times worse. There are so many reasons these days to help you transition to whole foods. When I fell off the wagon and consumed sugar or wheat, I feel miserable for a couple of days. It's never worth it. Of course, our diet has to affect how you feel. The nice thing about this is that you don't have to learn anything or research. Just don't put sugar yeah. in your mouth. It's easier to <laughs> not do something than to do something, right? So stop eating sugar. The last one, uh as a pastor I do this one perfectly. Number 7 is pray. <laughs> well,
0: she says you've re- don't you've skip- received
1: your reward in full, Brian. <laughs> yes, don't skip this because it sounds cliché. I forget how important this is. Don't pray so you can be free from fear. Pray because God is your father, and when you're struggling, you need to go to him. Talk to him honestly and ask him to walk with you in this battle. Pray in the shower while you walk, while you rest. Take one or two minutes to pray as you fall asleep. Do you get negative feedback from family members when you try to explain how anxious you feel, hurt feelings, feel misunderstood? This is why bringing our cares to God and letting him handle all the pain is the best way. And she goes on to conclude, there you go. Seven concrete ways that might help you lower your anxiety. Try them and let her know how it works. She says, I'm not anxiety free, but I have stretches of time when I can barely recall what anxiety feels like. And I never, ever take those days for granted. This is a post by uh, Michelle Lindsay. I know that uh, it's really helpful. What's one of the most helpful ones for you there? What's uh what's one where you're like, you know what? I'd, I'd like to do that one.
0: I mean, probably rest, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm curious what it is for you like you don't strike me as someone who really struggles all that much with anxiety.
1: Weirdly, and this can't really do in the last 30 seconds. I've struggled more with it now, not not nearly to the level she talks about, but I would say for me The more that I can have the simple one, she said, they're just going for a walk, walk the dog, walk without a purpose, like you said, looking at my phone or something, the better I do. And the challenging one for me, to be honest, I joked about it, is the stop eating sugar one. Like, you know, what we eat, what we put in our mouth and what we how we feel are tied together, especially as you get older. Uh, And that's that's always been something I've struggled with.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. Well, that's loosely connected to this next one, because I know that a lot of people have felt more anxious this year than they have in a long time. So I found this article from Wired.com to be fascinating. And the headline reads, who will we be when this is all over? The COVID-19 pandemic has brought incalculable suffering and trauma, but it also offers ways for people and even societies to change for the better. So who will we be when this is all over? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you are here today. And a question that I know that a number of people have been asking, it's been more looming for some, more hopeful for others, but out of Wired simply says, who will we be when this is all over? I thought this was a pretty interesting take. So why don't you get us into it?
1: Yeah, like you said, it's a question hovering over everything that we talked earlier about. The vaccine is out now and slowly but surely, hopefully life will get back to normal. And, and I think this is the question uh, that's going to become more and more important. Who are we going to be when this is all over? So it begins this way. Existential crises can bloom out of the loss of a job or family member or a shaking of your religious faith or even a bad drug trip. OK, basically, <laughs> you start to wonder, who am I? What's my purpose? What's the meaning of life? It's bewilder- It's a bewildering journey limited to the individual, or at least it was until the covid-19 pandemic shook the existence of all humanity we've lost loved ones jobs and any sense of normalcy for nearly a year now thanks to our surreal existence in lockdown the virus has claimed the lives at this part of this article 280,000 americans that number has gone up sadly uh, some COVID-19 survivors are still dealing with brutal symptoms months after they contracted to the disease. We've been trapped at home, many of us struggling with loneliness. Marriages and families have been pushed to the breaking point and beyond. And now, with several vaccines on the horizon and the end of the pandemic in sight, we face an existential conundrum. Who will we be when this is all over? Uh, the people who may have the toughest recovery are those living through pandemic-related trauma. As psychologists define it, trauma is the concern for your life, bodily harm or your own welfare or your concerns for someone else close to you. This might include people who have lost a loved one or who have survived a particularly severe case of covid-19. Uh, a very typical response to that is to feel like your worldview has been completely ripped apart, says social psychologist Amy Canavello. Uh, The lens through which you see the world and make sense of the world gets broken. This can lead to uncontrollable ruminations on the traumatic event. Think of the classic symptoms experienced by combat vets with post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks and nightmares. Even constant thinking about an event can bring constant stress. But some survivors of trauma end up embarking on what Canovello and other psychologists call post-traumatic growth. That uncontrollable rumination evolves into a more deliberate thinking about the event in which the patient puts the pieces of their worldview back together, not to forget the incident, but to incorporate it into a new way of seeing the world, which is why it's called post-traumatic growth, right? Says Canovello, you're not the same person you were before because you've had to figure out a way to incorporate this really negative thing into your sense of who you are and what and how the world operates. So I'll pause there. That is pretty fascinating. Setup that says mm-hmm. we've all experienced this on different levels, right? Some people have right. lost loved ones or they've been sick. Others of us have just had to deal with, you know, uh, a change in just your, your normal day to day, change in your job, whatever else it might be. Uh, but on some level now, for one of the first times we've experienced, in their words, a shared trauma. And uh, that there is this kind of, this could go really poorly post traumatic stress disorder where we just kind of, uh, you know, kind of collectively or individually crumble and just deal with this burden for so long. Or there could be post-traumatic growth, which I've quite frankly never heard of, but it does make sense. It does feel like COVID-19 culturally is going to be a bit of a, you know, a fork in the road at where with two very different answers. Uh, and And I hadn't really thought especially of how this could be a real growth time for people coming out of this.
0: Yeah. And it goes on to outline some of the other areas where the the pandemic, again, keeping in mind everything that you just said, has in some ways, you know, exposed the disparity between different social safeties for various different demographics. It's It's also introduced, you know, the an increased access to like telehealth and even even things like there's there's been inventions or things that have now kind of skyrocketed in popularity. You have zoom and, you know, we've used zoom a lot for like business purposes, but there are now all these other organizations that have thought through zoom, like, you know, video conferencing solutions. One they, they reference is called pace that is used for, uh, for people in um, nursing homes or people who aren't able to leave their, leave their establishments or whatever. Like there's been a lot of uh, growth and development and innovation in helping you know, give greater access to mental health professionals, you know, digitally, which I don't think will ever fully replace an in-person conversation. But gosh, it's certainly making a lot of these resources a lot more available than ever they were. And it's making a whole lot more of us a lot, uh, a lot more adept at actually using them, which is not nothing. Again, keeping in mind, all of the horrific things that have happened, it feels like and the article kind of goes on to unpack some other observations about what could potentially be a really helpful trend or a really helpful development going forward and kind of Mm -hmm. in some ways kind of pulling back the curtain or exposing some of the discrepancies or uh, errors in our systems that, you know, certainly there were groups of people that were aware that they were there if, you know, if they were the ones suffering. But at at a national or sometimes global scale, I think there's a, I think, I hope, a growing trend of of some kind of consciousness to better understand what some of these problems are.
1: And I think that this article does a really good job at uh, exactly what you're saying, pointing out that uh, researchers have been able to figure out what percentage of high-income people were able to stay home and work, while what percentage of low-income. And I think It will be interesting because just to say that now we are aware again by numbers and just having all gone through this together, rich and poor, black and white, but that it affected us and and how we were able to deal with it differently. It will be interesting to see if that conversation continues like, okay, how do we make it? If that, you know, God forbid, something like this were ever to happen again, what are the answers? Do we even want to wrestle with the answers? Does it bother us? The, the way that, you know, certain classes of people, uh, kind of shouldered this more than others that the riches of the rich got richer through this Uh do those things actually bother us or are we going to move on from those because it is one thing to say hey we learned how to work from home hey we learned how to use zoom or to you know churches like mine that weren't online before and are now online you know we can do those kinds of things i'm interested to see if going you know out of this if people are going to have any appetite to go What things didn't we like about our society that came out of this, (laughs) you know, that we were faced with? I would guess that we're probably going to blow past those. um, But but it will be interesting, I think, because there has certainly you read this article talks about, you know, uh, once schools closed, who did it most affect? Once it was kind of stay at home orders, who were the people who were able able to do that and others who couldn't? Uh, and so I do think though that's going to be really interesting coming out of this.
0: Yeah. And, and again, the article mentions a number of things that you and I have talked about on the show where it seems so insignificant, but a lot of people have taken up reading who haven't read in decades or or mm-hmm. cooking or walking with their kids or calling loved ones more more regularly. I, th- I do feel like there are some rhythms. I don't know if you have any that come to mind. We've talked a, a little bit about just family time, right? Are, are there any yeah. outside of like just more face-to-face time with our families that stand out to you is like, wow, yeah, this pandemic actually really, really brought that change about in me or in my, my weekly rhythms.
1: Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's the biggest one for me being reminded. I love being home with my kids and my wife and I love dinners. And it's also reminded me of the things that I most miss that were taken away from me. And even as I think about those, I think about church and I think about other things, but, but I most think about Oh, those things that we could do as a family, right? Going out to eat at a restaurant, going for a weekend away, whatever else it might be. So, both the things for me, the things that I've gained from the pandemic, but also the things that I've lost that I most miss, both circle around family time. And so, mm-hmm. I think that that's going to last no matter what.
0: That's a great take, Brian. And I would echo that entirely. That's a very Christian thing to say. I echo that. I don't. I don't think I <laughs> often hear I non-Christians hear... say anything like that. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I echo that. Echo. But uh, either way, that article with along with everything else we talked about it's up on our facebook page the common good radio show and uh you can comment weigh in or send us a private message if you like coming up next though uh a really really brilliant theologian someone i respect a lot Miroslav wolf is going to weigh in on really whether or not we should be gathering even if the government says we can that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 over your life Coming up this hour, should we gather even if the government says we should? And then we're joined by author David Moreau, author of Drowning in Screen Time. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you're still here or just joining us or wherever you're at on your Common Good journey. Brian Ah, I didn't know if we should get into it, but we're going to get into it. We're going to talk a little (laughs) bit more. I know. I know. This is like the big looming question that as pastors, Mm -hmm. we've faced the entire year. Should we or shouldn't we? And you and I have talked about some of the stuff that people, I think, well-meaning people have said to us as pastors, some of it encouraging, some of it very discouraging. Maybe that's just part of leadership. It probably is. But this whole year, doesn't it just feel like, wow. People are definitely on edge. And I, I do think, I do think this, this author, this theologian, Miroslav Volf has a lot of good things to say. He's someone that I know Tim Keller has read and referenced a bunch. His headline here over at American magazine says the Supreme court ruled you, you have the right to worship in person. That doesn't mean you should. You want to get us into
1: it? I do this. Like you said, this is for, especially for us as pastors, it's such a big deal right now. Miroslav Volf wrote, uh, Ever since cities and states first restricted public gatherings in response to COVID-19, some religious people have complained that worshiping communities have faced unfairly harsh regulations. Even so, many of us live in places where there are at most very limited restrictions on in-person worship. The recent U.S. Supreme Court decision means more of us may soon be in the same situation. Rightly. The court ruled that the religious worship must not be treated more restrictively than other comparable activities, but that states also have the right to impose strict uh, impose restrictions on attendance at religious services as long as they do so without discriminating between people, though the legal status of in-person worship is increasingly clear. There is an important difference between having a legal right to do something and it being morally right for you to do it. So should we be worshiping together under the same roof this Advent and Christmas season? The pandemic, he writes, is raging more ferociously than ever. The United States has seen record highs in newly reported cases, hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19 in the last week. The coronavirus is now the leading cause of death in our country. In these grave circumstances, all people have a moral obligation to their neighbors, whoever they are, to practice social distancing, to wear masks, and to avoid large gatherings. Christians, of all people, should recognize and respect that obligation. Though the legal status of in-person worship is increasingly clear, there is an important difference between having a legal right to do something and it being morally right for you to do it. Uh, let me just pause there. He's going to keep going and we'll read some more of that. You and I, we've talked about this multiple times, but for people who don't know, uh, we're pastors at very different sized churches and at churches who are doing different things right now in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, so my church, uh, a bit of a smaller church than yours, uh, we are doing uh, one gathering on Sunday morning, 50 people. You got to sign up in advance. Everybody's socially distanced, like we set up the chairs that way. Everybody has to wear a mask from the time they come in to the time they leave. And uh and then we're also uh and the majority of our people are still watching online. So we are uh we're live streaming that service as it goes. Your church, on the other hand, has chosen uh to not con- not to uh resume meeting uh until things kind of calm down from COVID nineteen. And so Like I bring that up to say, you and I are in the middle of this. We're living this. We're wrestling with this every day. We're getting questions about this every single day. And uh, and 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 he brings up a really interesting uh, conundrum, because when a lot of people come back to me and be like, why are we wearing masks? We don't have to do it or probably go to you. Why are we not meeting? We're allowed to meet the difference between. Yes, we can versus should we is a really important question in the midst of this whole discussion.
0: Yeah, he goes on. He says, as believers, we put not only each other at risk when we gather in person. People infected at church services carry the disease to all interactions they have with people outside the church. To insist on worshiping in person is to insist on doing harm to our neighbors. So that that's pretty on the nose, at least from his perspective. Some religious leaders, however, claim that not gathering together causes spiritual damage that is arguably worse than the physical disease and death caused by COVID-19 exactly what kind of spiritual damage do they mean? So that's something that you've heard, right? We've probably mm-hmm. done how many, a dozen and a half articles on like the mental, emotional, and spiritual strain right. of isolation and lockdown and quarantine, especially for people who don't live with families that are at least having the opportunity to see other human bodies. Do you, do you find that to be a compelling kind of counter argument, not to put you on the spot? Cause I know that you guys are gathering much smaller, mm-hmm. um, with registration and masks and all that. But do you you find that an an interesting counterpoint?
1: I do. I think that uh, we have to try to find ways, even if it's Zoom, right? But we have to find ways to creatively uh, help people not be isolated and lonely. And, uh, And that doesn't mean people have to come. It doesn't mean we have to gather the way we've always gathered on Sunday morning. But I I don't think you and I've discussed it, but there was even that that article floating around and I'd love to dig more into it, but that there was a study the other day that said uh, that now I think there's probably lots of reasons behind it that claim, though, that the only group that was surveyed whose mental health, they said, was improved uh, over the last couple of months were people attending weekly worship services. Hmm. Again, my guess is there's more complexity to that, Hmm. Uh, but there certainly is something to be said about uh, about. The importance of gathering and being together. The question is: Does that importance uh, trump the the whatever dangers there might be?
0: Well, and that's what that's what I find interesting too, because he goes on to talk about, and I, I think a pretty interesting way, the Eucharist specifically. Um, and then he also does mention like why it's important that we recognize that preaching is what does he say here? It's enhanced by physical presence, preaching, fellowship of believers, singing, but can still be done online, which I find. Particularly interesting for someone uh like Miroslav Wolf, someone who has a a very particular theological bent that mm-hmm. I I would assume in, in any other reality would be very embodied, very incarnational at its core. So I, I would, man, let's get him on the show. I'd love to ask him about that. Like, oh, is it is it yeah. only enhanced by physical presence, or is it or is it something deeper than that? Is there something more meaningful than just simply like, sure preaching and fellowship and singing is enhanced when it's done in person, but can still be done online. I'd be curious to know your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Again, I, it is certainly here. I can only speak anecdotally from what I have experienced. Okay. With our church, uh, it has certainly been a breath of fresh air and, and important for those that feel safe to come together. Now it has required us to do uh, very specific things that have left those there to say, okay, I feel safe. Right. And yeah. I get, I get emails and texts from people all the time. I I know of some people in our church who aren't going to our church, who've chosen to go to a church where they don't have to wear masks anymore. Like I get that there's this whole spectrum. Uh, I think what we need to do is go uh, legitimately, do we feel that what we're doing is safe and within the bounds of the recommendations of what we've been given, but then also not to throw stones at churches like yours, who for your reasons have said, no, you know what, we don't feel comfortable meeting. And also those uh, that have been a little less restrictive, and and I think that this is a time for us to be uh, to challenge one another. Like, why do you think you can do it this way? But then to also show each other a little bit of grace. I think we've been talking about it since March. I do think his his discussion about being willing to sacrifice for the sake of our neighbors is very much at the heart of the gospel, mm-hmm. and uh, and is still an important part of this conversation. Right somewhere along the way in eight, eight or nine months, it turned from we want to love our neighbors well to I'm allowed to do this, get out of my way. And, and I do think we, gotta, we, we need to go back to how do we love our neighbors? Well, it doesn't even necessarily mean we don't meet, uh, but, but to have that lens, I do think is something that I feel like we've lost a little bit in general, over the last eight, nine months that we got to get back to.
0: Yeah, I'll just read how he closes. He says, as Pope Francis reminds us, the parable of the Good Samaritan shows that belief in God and the worship of God are not enough to ensure that we are actually living in a way pleasing to God. And he says, remember, Jesus commended the Samaritan for setting aside his own priorities, favoring those of the man in need. The Samaritan was a true neighbor indeed. Let us stay home and do likewise. Either way, we know that this is a a controversial issue, a controversial topic, and one that we want to tread intelligently and winsomely in. So again, we would love to know what you think. Do you agree, disagree? Do you have a third perspective or a different angle? You can do all that over on the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. And coming up next for not one but two segments, David Moreau, author of the new book, Drowning in Screen Time, is going to join us right here on the Common Good On AM1160, hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the world wide web: Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, it is the season of giving. So if you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and viewing on any of those platforms does help us out a whole lot. And we are thrilled to have not just for one, but two segments. To have David Moreau on the show. Welcome to the show, sir. Good to be with you. Hey, likewise. Would you just take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not, unlike you, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a professor or a theologian. I don't know any Greek or Hebrew. I'm just a guy in the pews who, uh, about 20 years ago, noticed there was always more men than women in the church. So I wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church, and that's how I kind of got my start in the Christian world. Hmm. Um, But now I've turned my attention to uh, the issue of screen time. Uh, My day job is as a television producer and writer. And so uh, I'm very sensitive to the uh, hours and hours we're investing in our screens. And I'm seeing that displacing real life in the life, particularly of young people, young adults, they're missing out on real life experiences. And it's taking a toll on our society. So I felt led to to write a book called Drowning in Screen Time, and that'll be coming out in uh, January.
1: Uh, I I can't think of a more timely book (laughs) than that right now, David. We talk about screen time on our show all the time. I've got three kids. I have a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old, and an 11-year-old. And so this is kind of right in our wheelhouse right now. Uh, And I guess I would ask kind of big picture. uh, You wrote the book kind of going at a problem. What People might be thinking, oh, screens, they're pretty neutral. You know, they're pretty neutral. Why do you think screens right now uh, are such a big deal and a problem for us to be tackling?
2: Well, I think in the church, we've tended to see screen time in terms of the morality of the content. You know, mm-hmm. as long as we stay away from the cussing and the drugs and the sex and the nudity, then we can just, you know, gorge on the as much as we want. But the real issue now with screen time is the simply the number of hours that we're spending on our mm-hmm. screens. A, a pre-pandemic survey from Nielsen Media Research in 2018 revealed that the average American spends nine hours a day Engorging on screen uh, content. That's wow. television, uh, video gaming, fl- Facebook, uh, all the things that we do online and through traditional television. So that, and then the pandemic came, and then we added all this work and school time on top of it. Some people are literally never getting away from their screens all day. So the big concern, of course, now is it's sh- sheer volume. And what that's doing is it's displacing spiritual disciplines. Uh, People aren't, you know, having quick prayer prayer times with God like we used to. We're playing Candy Crush on our phones. Uh, We're not thinking about other people because we don't see other people. Our our eyes are buried on our screens. So that's mainly what the, the, the problem explanation of my book is. I'm trying to help Christians see this is not just a matter of staying away from Game of Thrones, Hmm. You have to be very diligent about the number of hours you are devoting to your screens because they have really become the object of our worship.
0: That's interesting. One of the things that I'll often say about technology is that it's not good or bad, but it's not neutral. Like it is shaping us regardless of what you were saying, what you're watching. And I'd be curious about the relational aspect of this, particularly since, you know, Brian and I are both pastors. A lot of churches are still using screens. We're maybe engaging Church time or whatever that space looked like for us, you know, predominantly through a screen, can screens and technology be used to build authentic community and relationships in your mind?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, a hammer is a neutral tool. You can use it to build a house or break a window. Right. And screens are the same thing. You can use them for good purposes or bad purposes. So can they be used as discipleship tools? Absolutely, they should be used as discipleship tools. But the, the problem is we're spending so many hours and displacing so many spiritual disciplines and so many other things. I mean, family time, for example, you guys have kids, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep. Well, what's, what we're seeing is a phenomenon that uh, MIT professor Sherry Turkle calls being alone together, mm. uh, where we all we're all together at the house, but we're all plugged into a separate screen. Dad might be watching ESPN, Mom might be on Pinterest, you know, Sally's on Facebook or or TikTok or whatever the, you know, the big social media platform of the week is. And then Desmond's in his bedroom blowing away aliens on video games. So we're all physically together, but we're not interacting with one another. What that does is that forces us when parents and and kids finally do come together, what do we talk about? It's all the stuff you have to do. Hey, have you cleaned up your room? Hey, have you turned in your college applications? Hey, have you done your homework? So what happens mm. is you create this joyless, you know, parents become joyless nags because the only times they talk to their kids is all the have-tos. We're preempting those healthy interactions that normally took place before when we weren't completely absorbed in our screens. Yeah,
1: yeah. Hmm. I, I want to hone in a little bit more even on on the kids and, and the issue with kids, teenagers. Uh, what is the research showing or what did you find is the effect in this generation right now? This is one of the first generations that's always had screens. Uh, And so how is how is that affecting them maybe different from when we were kids and we were being teenagers and moving into our early adult years?
2: Well, it's it's having kids grow up with a very uh, strong sense of entitlement and being right. They've grown up uh, being able to cancel and censor ideas that they didn't like. And that's why we're seeing cancel culture now in colleges and universities. You know, these kids are used to unfriending and banishing things that are not to their liking. The Mm -hmm. screen world actually slowly, due to algorithms and other content, the screen world uh, constantly reforms itself around our opinions, our tastes, our interests. And so kids are growing up with with an entitlement mentality. They expect the real world to conform to their tastes and their interests Mm -hmm. and their political views and their spiritual views. And so it's taking a real toll on young people because they, they, they get into the real world and they're completely unprepared for a world that doesn't conform. To to what they want, and uh, we're seeing a, less, a lot of emotional fragility and the the, the snowflake uh, phenomenon. You know that's as that's as a result of, of kids being utterly unprepared for real a real world that does not yield to their preferences.
0: So one of the things that we're finding just in our you know anecdotal research for this show is that there seems to be a pretty strong connection between anxiety and depression and our our use of technology. Are you finding that same thing to be true? And if so, I I wonder why you think that is.
2: Yes, we are finding a huge spike in uh, anxiety that uh, started in about 2011 and 2012, which was exactly the year that significant numbers of kids began carrying iPhones and Androids around in their pockets. So uh, the problem is comparison. Uh, Kids have always compared themselves to others, particularly girls. But uh, you never had so many people and things to compare yourselves to. Uh, Now you have this moment by moment competition going on. Hmm. Uh, You know, social media influencers are constantly flashing their beautiful teeth and flawless looks and their beautiful homes. And and they're always there. And we get to, you know, whereas, you know, an old style television, you might see a television actress and you would kind of feel distant from her with social media. You feel very proximate with the people you follow. And so it's creating this virtual society that you have to compete against, which is causing all sorts of anxiety. Plus, we're presented with such a multiplicity of choices that uh, we're afraid to make it the wrong one. And that creates anxiety. Mm. So there's actually and there's several more that uh, fountains of anxiety or what would I say? Sources of anxiety that social scientists have uncovered. Uh, But those are just two. It's uh, this comparison and these Mm. uh, unlimited choices that screens present us with that is causing so much anxiety. Mm.
1: I'm sure a lot of parents out there, myself included, are wondering, someone like you who's done all of this research and thought about this and talked to so many people, is there an age you think, yeah, this is when I'd feel comfortable giving my kid a, a phone or you know, letting them on social media, or, or is there a different metric you would use? I'm wondering how you think that through.
2: Well, there's technology coming to the rescue. Um, I'm, I'm not being paid to endorse this particular product, but there's a company called Gab Wireless. And they have a little smartphone that's pretty dumb. You know, you can't put social media on it. You can't play TikTok. Right. You can't do YouTube. Uh, but it looks like a real phone. And so that's that's a phone that you can give to a kid in sixth grade. Yep. All it does is call your parents. You get texts right. from an approved list of people. So technology created the problem. But then certain technology companies are also coming to the rescue. Interesting. Mm. We are thrilled to have for a
0: second segment, David Moreau, who's the author of numerous books, but most recently, Drowning in Screen Time, which is a conversation Brian and I have had a lot in the last two years. And I want to ask you a question which I think might be on everyone's mind, and that's technology and COVID. How do you think COVID-19 has or will impact our view of technology? Like, Do you think that there's some silver lining there? Is it all negative? Is it all positive? How do you see COVID affecting our use of technology?
2: Well, I think there's from what I'm getting in my emails and hearing from people is there's a real backlash to technology coming. I mean, we were, Mm -hmm. as I said in the first segment, we were already spending nine hours a day on our screens. And then all of a sudden work and school and church and all the everything else that we used to do in person moved online simultaneously. You know, that's a real blessing in a time of social distancing. But I think people are absolutely burning out on screen time. And there's a there's going to be a very strong movement back toward uh, interpersonal uh, reaction, interpersonal relationships and interaction in the coming months as the vaccine uh, proliferates and and as uh, caseloads go down. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm just wondering how writing a book like this and doing the research, how has it changed how you you personally, how you use technology and how you view screens in your own life?
2: Well, I've had to be very uh, careful. Uh, There's There have been two times in my life where I have unwittingly become screen addicted. The first was in 2003 when I got my first Wi-Fi enabled laptop Hmm. and I was I was ignoring my kids. You know, I didn't realize it. You know, I was I was there in the room with them, but I wasn't looking at them. And that that eye contact is so important with children. And then the second time was just a couple of years ago when I got addicted to a, a phone game. Mm-hmm. And when I say addicted, I mean I was just feeling whenever I had a spare moment standing in line of the bank or waiting for the plane to take off or uh, you know, sitting whenever sitting in my chair at home, I would just instinctively whip out that phone and start, you know, pumping my brain full of dopamine playing this game. And so right. I've just had to be very, very cognizant of of not filling in those those empty spaces in my in my day and redirecting those toward thinking of others, toward prayer and meditation and toward the things that are really going to make me a better man and a better father, a better husband. So
0: I want to, I want to get a little practical because I know that, you know, oftentimes the temptation is to say, I'm just going to throw my phone away. I'm going to, I'm going to go live on a mountain. And most of us, <laughs> you know, 12 seconds after saying that are like, I don't want to live on a mountain. I like my phone. I like my computer. You know, Brian and I will often tackle one of the themes that we come back to was like echo chambers and confirmation bias, or like how important mm-hmm. boredom can even be to creativity. So I, I'd be curious to know, do, do you have any like simple or practical steps that you would recommend someone take to, to maybe regulate or, or even wean themselves off of some of their technological use?
2: Yeah. I mean, whatever motivates you, uh, the, the, the one of the easiest, the simplest old fashioned remedies is just to put a uh, rubber band on your arm. And every time you reach that phone, snap the rubber band. I mean, <laughs> I've been doing that since I was a kid and it always seems to work, you know, pinch yourself, uh, just, little, little, whatever games you need to play with yourself to keep yourself from instinctively grabbing your phone is really good. Uh, There's good, really good replacement strategies. One of the things that my wife would always do is she would come in and immediately turn on the television whenever she was in the house, because she liked the noise in the room. Well, then she started watching TV before she knew it. She'd spent the whole evening with Oprah or, you know, whoever. Right, right. So, uh, what, one of the things we've done is we've gotten speakers that we put around the house and they play gentle, relaxing music. And that, oh, that sound seems to satiate her, her desire to have sound in the house. She doesn't like to be alone as a lot of women don't. So, um, just what you have to do is just figure out what is the thing that, that you can replace screen time with that's healthier, that's better for you that, uh, facilitates family time and time for prayer and meditation and, and the things that are important. And just figure that out for yourself and then, you know, do those things. If you have a really severe or a, a, a very chronic addiction to screen content, uh, you may need to go on what's called a digital detox. That's where you get away for a weekend, put all your screens away, uh, you know, go to a remote place and just practice being bored, practice noticing things. Practice being stimulated and and energized by low stimulus activities, because what your screen does, is constantly stimulating your brain. You need to learn to be content, you know, watching nature go by. Yeah.
1: And uh, you're listening to David Moreau. And David, I do want to ask you, you're the director of an organization called Church for Men. uh, And you're also the author of a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church, which uh, I don't know if that came out 10, 15 years ago, was just widely, widely read. Uh, across the church world. I remember reading it with our leadership team of our men's ministry of the church I was at at that point. And so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, just do you think that the church is getting better in the last 15 or 20 years uh, in engaging men? What do you think the state of the church, particularly around men, is right now?
2: Well, it's, it's a tale of two churches. Uh, if you're talking about mega churches and these innovative young churches, absolutely better at reaching men. Uh, in fact, men are the secret sauce of uh churches you know they're in Chicago land uh, The most famous church in Chicago is uh willow creek and the the, the now deposed leader, founder of that uh, Bill Hybels, his philosophy was you reach the guy to reach the family and he built a church that would create a that would a skittish guy would feel comfortable in. Rick Warren duplicated that out in California with Saddleback. So, yes, if you reach men, you reach the family. If you reach the family, you have a growing church. On the other hand, most traditional churches have completely ignored men. They pretended they haven't existed. The mainline churches are becoming more and more feminized, and uh, it's a very, very tough lift, and they're you know it's often sixty seventy percent old women running these churches. so it's a tale of two churches, as i said the uh, the more innovative. Uh, churches are definitely reaching out to men, being intentional about reaching those guys. But the old line, mainline, are still stuck in the old ways, and it only mainly attracts older women.
0: So, David, we, we maybe only have time for one or two more questions. But I've I've been really interested this last year, in particular, in how we think through things like spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, and I know that technology for a lot of us is pretty deeply embedded in that, whether we're watching or engaging with the church service on Sunday, or maybe it's a, even a prayer app or a Bible app that we've downloaded, it's still often on a screen of some kind. I would love for you to just take a minute or two and speak to the importance of spiritual disciplines and formation and and how, how would you kind of coach someone through maybe even taking an assessment of their screen time? Because my guess is plenty of people listening are thinking, great, I need less screen time, but other people might be thinking, I'm fine. I'm fine with my screen time. Nope. No problem here. How do you help people better kind of assess what their own personal need is?
2: Well, I would say the most ignored and neglected, uh, spiritual discipline and and especially in 2020 is fellowship. Um, Mm -hmm. if your screen time is displacing human, human time, face time, actual in the room with other people time, then you've got a problem. Uh, the Christian life cannot be lived alone. It's a team sport. Uh, you need people around you. Uh, so that would be the first thing that I would say. There are a lot of online assessment tools. I'm building one at my website, davidmuro.com right now, that'll help you determine whether, you know, what, kind, what type of screen, what kind of relationship you have with screens, uh, hmm. whether you're overusing wholesome content or you're into uh, unwholesome content or you're completely addicted. Uh, you need to kind of evaluate where you are, what your relationship is, and then, you know, take steps to, to get rebalanced. You know, the good news is, is probably the easiest way to get rebalanced when it comes to screen time is simply eliminate that mindless screen time yeah. uh, that, you know, that picking up the phone, turning on the TV, sitting down with the Doritos and grabbing the video game controller. You know, it's those things we don't think about. If you could eliminate that, you're halfway home. Yeah, that's really good. Our
0: guest today has been David Moreau, author of the brand new book relevant to all of us. By the way, it's called Drowning in Screen Time. I cannot recommend enough that you pick up that book. David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mm
0: -hmm. It's our pleasure. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you're here today. I'm gonna I'm gonna share an article from Scott Stalls, and I'm sure no one's shocked if you've listened to our show for more than four seconds. We're uh, big fans of Scott Stalls. He's a great pastor and writer and blogger, and his article is called "How God Really Sees You." I thought that was a good way to kind of end the show. But I thought first, I don't want to deprive you of uh, of holidays, Brian. Oh, that's Do you want right? You want to take idea. any 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 guesses on the holidays?
1: Today is December the 14th. It is, Are you just stalling uh, at
0: this point? Is that, no, no, is that what's no. going on? I've,
1: I've always guessed National um, S'mores Day. It, feels, it doesn't feel like s'more time of year, but I'm going to stick with it because one of these days I'm going to be right.
0: You're nothing if not consistent, Brian, but you're also incorrect. It is uh, a couple of things. Here's for your state. I know you missed the state holiday last time. National Alabama Day. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, you couldn't have sounded less interested in it's that state, one.
1: The state ones get me. They get me. <laughs> do they really? Okay, it's
0: also yeah. Monkey Day. I don't know what that means. Okay. Monkey Day. It's Green Monday. Also don't know what that means. I don't I have no idea what that means. And last but not least, it's Free Shipping Day. So <laughs> no idea. Not I, even I, a little bit.
1: I did hear something on the news today about those of us who – uh who tend to procrastinate on the christmas gifts they have they've coined because of covid and everything right now that we are about to have quote shipment get in shipment to get in i'm going to say that incorrectly but that uh (laughs) they're going to be overwhelmed with the shipment of gifts so if you think you're going to get your gift there on time it's not coming it's not going to happen so well green
0: green monday is actually a shopping holiday i'm finding out here much like black friday or cyber monday it falls on the second monday of december while it isn't currently clear about the origin of the name. It has been said that it's called Green Monday because it's the same color as the American dollar. So
1: interesting. Okay.
0: There interesting. you have it. Could not care less. Anyway, I'm going I'm s-
1: to purposely not look up when s'more day is because I want to be surprised.
0: Wow. That's life in the fast lane, Brian. You are.
1: <laughs> I want to keep the anxiety out. I want to
0: keep a real, the a, real, a real James Dean over there, man. Golly. My Picture. goodness. <laughs> Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be naughty. I'm not going to look up National (laughs) S'mores Day. Ooh. (laughs) All right. Well, now that I've ridiculed you on air. I think this is a uh, good article like to close anyway. with.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> From Scott Sauls, Brian, how God really sees you. Hopefully this will uh, this will be aloe on the burn. I appreciate. Um,
1: oh. do, you, do you want to get us into it? <laughs> yeah, let's get Scott Sauls, friend of the show, as we like to call him. He says this, last I checked, there were 861,000 self-help books available on Amazon. The sheer popularity of self-help books points to the reality that humans live with an insatiable longing for something more. This is why we keep making resolutions at New Year's. How are your resolutions from this January going so far? Mine, not so great, but I think that's okay. And I'm hope, I am hope here to convince you of the same. Most of us are plagued with an inevitable frustration toward ourselves. Oh, that's a good line right there. Yeah. We were made for more. We were made to be more, and we know it. As we're reminded in Paul's letter to the Romans, we groan under the weight of this longing. That's in Romans 8, to 23, uh, 24. When the light of God is active within us, this frustration can be a hopeful sign of what's to come, but has not yet been realized. Call it a holy dissatisfaction, a frustrated anticipation of what we know will one day come true, that we will be like Jesus, for we will see him as he is. Hmm. Our innate, unshakable longing to be better suggests that deep down, we don't really believe that the air is human after all. If we're Hmm. governed by scripture, filled with the Holy Spirit and aware of our calling to become perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, we will always feel a tension with this popular sentiment. The very fact that we confess our sins betrays this idea. As those who are created in the image of God, it is in our hard wiring to long for more for ourselves and from ourselves. Uh, Blaise Pascal wrote, the greatness of man is so evident that it is even proved by his wretchedness for what in animals is nature is nature we call in man wretchedness by which we recognize that his nature being like that of animals he has fallen from a better nature for, uh, which once was his who is unhappy to at not being a king except a deposed king put more simply we're meant to grow we're meant to improve we're meant to become unstuck but the question mm. remains how uh, i like is often the case with Salzman. I, I do just resonate with what he's saying, that longing of uh, I'm supposed to be more, uh, I'm supposed to do better, these kinds of things. Don't you uh, resonate with what he's talked about here in a lot of people, don't you? Yeah, don't, you? That's, don't you?
0: Again, that's such a forced question. What am I, who am I to say no? No. Yeah, 100%. I think that there is a, a a longing that COVID or not, everyone feels, especially in December, as they're like ramping up, into new year's resolution i think this is really the season of the year where at least the most americans tend to think about all right what are we gonna do differently and it feels like it's accelerate, it's elevated this year because there's so much language around like gosh i can't wait to just get past 2020 and i and i do think there's some significance to like you know ringing in the new year and a fresh start but like january 2 does not mean that we're going to magically be new people or that, you know, exercising or eating right is going to just magically come easier or, you know, what I mean, like there's there we do sometimes trick ourselves, which is kind of how he introduces the article that there is a oh, yeah, January Ian is super disciplined and he's going to he's going to maintain all of these commitments. I think it, again, can be a really good kind of starting over type of thing. But I think what he gets in here about how we actually change is is really smart.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to jump down later. The whole blog post is worth your time. But later on, he's going to say, Through faith, we are blameless in God's eyes, positionally perfect, not because of our goodness, but because of his. And it keeps getting better. In Jesus, we are also loved by God in the longest, widest, highest, and deepest ways, such that Mm -hmm. nothing could ever separate us from that love, not even ourselves. Therefore, we have nothing left to hide. We could strip off our religious masks, forsake the imposter, and start living our lives freely again, naked and unashamed before the eyes of our judge who has now become our savior. With our lives bound up in the finished work of Jesus, we are then recipients of God's blessing pronounced over him at his baptism. Beloved hmm. daughters and sons with whom the father is well-pleased. In Jesus, the father has no punitive anger left for us. In Jesus, the father takes great delight at us, will quiet us with his love and rejoices over us with love songs. In Jesus, the father invites us to address him intimately. He is our Abba, meaning daddy or papa. This is how God sees us. And we talk so often about how uh, our identity in Christ is the foundation of how we see ourselves. But man, that could be a really difficult way to live.
0: Yeah. Why do you think it's so difficult?
1: Because everything else that we do in our <laughs> lives is about how we act and what we deserve and what we yeah. have earned. Uh, and transactional. If you do this, then I react this way. That it becomes hard for us not to put God in that same category. All
0: right, so Brian, this is this is kind of a sweet spot for you. Just to to close us out today, give give a word of encouragement to somebody who's just feeling <laughs> exhausted, burnout. No, for real, because I think a lot of people listening are feeling the weight and strain of so many things. And I've heard you speak so eloquently to this numerous times. Just just close us out with with a with a word of hope or encouragement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think uh, having Uh, How we view ourselves being rooted in our identity in Christ and how God sees us and needing to just be again reminded that because of the amazing work of Jesus Christ, God calls us his children. And that the same way I love my children unconditionally and I don't look at them at the end of each day and go, "Ah, you didn't really live up to my standards today. Therefore, I don't love you. Like I love my kids uh, is how our heavenly father sees us. And even that Mm -hmm. much more that he's the perfect heavenly father. I'm an imperfect father. And uh, I'll end with the quote that Saul's use here from Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning says, Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion.
0: That's that's how you end a show, my man. I am grateful for those words, grateful for the truth behind those words. And I hope, at the very least, today on this Monday, it encourages you, it gives you some hope, it gives you some light. uh, And amidst all the craziness, Hope that that truth kind of resonates deeply in your bones. And with that, our show is done for today. But fret not, we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.